This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Sometimes when I look over at Mr. McMillan and he turns the mic hot, I'm raring to go. And today, in fact, is one such day. But to a degree that's almost unprecedented, yours truly is not sure exactly where to go. The reason for this is that I am overwhelmed with things to talk about. As mentioned on last week's program, yours truly was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the Cyril Wecht Institute for Forensic Science and Law for their annual conference titled Passing the Torch. In this case, it was an, in this case, an international symposium on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. There were a lot of speakers over a three-day period and a lot of fascinating information. And how it is I can share the experience of three days' worth of conference and about 30 or 40 minutes' worth of radio is, well, I'd have to say, impossible. Could pause a moment to note a couple things. Not only is the topic of people getting assassinated a bit of a grim one we're just going to have to deal with, but that as today's program uh, unfolds, the names CIA and Central Intelligence Agency are just going to pop up. They're just going to. This correspondent is aware of the fact that there are some awfully good people working for the Central Intelligence Agency. Every nation needs to have intelligence. We're no exception. And without a doubt, some bright people working for the agency have turned up some useful data, such as during the ramp-up to the war in Iraq, the lower-level CIA people that leaked to the press that there was nothing to this weapons of mass destruction stuff. This was all being wildly exaggerated. Of course, the higher end of the CIA, people like George Tenet were instrumental in helping get that bunch of BS out before the public. And I'm sad to note that that's also going to be a recurring theme as we unfold today's show. Our quote of the day comes from Adlai Stevenson, who once said it's often easier to fight for a principle than live up to it. And our quip of the day, which is, I think, appropriate, having attended a conference where people there have sometimes gone from one opinion to another, which is as they should do. Quote from John Maynard Keynes, who famously once said, When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Our joke of the day comes from John F. Kennedy who delivered a pretty good line back in 1958 at the Gridiron Club, two years before he would actually win the presidency. Then Senator Kennedy went up to um, deal with the consensus opinion in Washington. He was probably both a pawn and proxy for his powerful and rather unscrupulous father, Joe. Kennedy deflated that by pulling out a piece of paper from his pocket to read a telegram that he said had been sent by his father regarding the upcoming 1960 presidential election said Joe Kennedy, supposedly. Jack, don't spend one dime more than's necessary. I'll be damned if I'm going to pay for a landslide. Our anecdote of the day comes from something that happened to me at the WECT conference at Duquesne. Jim Eugenio and I were talking to the widow of Gayton Fonzie, a very well-respected investigator for the House Select Committee back in the 1970s. Mrs. Fonzie was talking about how um, she couldn't understand why it was that Gayton put up with Bill O'Reilly. Back then, Bill O'Reilly was convinced that there'd been a conspiracy in the case, unlike what he says today. Mrs. Fonzie said, you know, uh, Gayton gave Bill his first job. To which Jim and I said, really? 
She said, yeah, it was for a local magazine down there in Miami. He hired Bill for $25 a month, which caused her to pause and sort of reflect on the fact that, geez, Bill went from $25 a month to like, what, $6 million a year, which caused me to remark, he was overpaid then, which did get a chuckle out of Mrs. Fonzie. All right, our stat of the day, and in this we're going to adhere to our JFK theme which is that, as reported by USA Today several months ago, more people believe that Oswald acted alone now than at any time since a few years after the assassination. But this can't be very reassuring for supporters of the uh, official view because the number of people that thought Oswald did it alone was 24%. Back in 1966, it was 36%, and it's never been as high as 24% since. If you're keeping score, 59% of Americans, according to this poll six months ago, think that there was a conspiracy to kill the 35th president. And I would like to add at this point in the program, they are correct. To which I would immediately graph on the fact that the opinion that John F. Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy is an opinion that does not necessarily represent that of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But if I do my job right, by the time this hour is over, that 59% will include you. All right, and you know, one thing we can't admit from the program is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's do a little of that. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for family trees. After Austrian scientists used DNA analysis to prove that 19 men currently living in the country's Tyrol region are related to Otzi, the Iceman, whose 5,300-year-old body was found frozen in the Alps back in 1991. But it was a bad week last week, apparently, for Googling. After Massachusetts police seized a computer belonging to suspected bank robber Sarah McLeod and allegedly discovered it had been used for web searches that included what happens if you rob a bank and also if you're going to rob a bank, dot, 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 and finally, it was an ugly week last week for, I don't know, take your pick. Childhood, the Postal Service, our insane legal system. Here's the item. The U.S. Postal Service halted the production on its exercised-themed stamps over complaints that some of the illustrations depicted children who were not wearing protective gear. The offending Let's Move stamps showed children skateboarding without knee pads cannonballing into the water and doing headstands without a helmet. Headstands without a helmet? Why, it's inconceivable. Now, who it is that thinks you're going to get protection by cannonballing into the water wearing a helmet? Well, we, we don't know. All right, here's an item we're tempted to label with only in Azerbaijan, except that it isn't really only in Azerbaijan. In fact, this reminds us all too uncomfortably of the U.S. elections in 2000 and 2004, but here's the story. The authoritarian regime in Azerbaijan accidentally announced last week the re-election of President Ilham Aliyev a day before the polls opened. Yes, apparently the Central Election Commission's smartphone app showed Aliyev winning a third term with 73% of the vote, with just 7.4% going for opposition candidate Jamil Hassanli. The CEC quickly retracted the, quote, results, unquote, saying it had mistakenly republished the last election returns. 
but it's been noted by international observers since Haslani didn't run in 2008 that seemed rather implausible. The country, ruled by either Aliyev or his father since 1993, have never held an election that Western observers deemed free and fair. And now we have no information on whether they were using Diebold machines to count the votes. Of course, Azerbaijan used to be part of the USSR, and uh, Joseph Stalin, dictator of Soviet of the Soviet Union, once did say, did once say, "Those who vote decide nothing; those who count the vote decide everything." Boy, and speaking of elections, and I guess Republicans, some years back, uh, the GOP had Joe the Plumber as part of their. Uh, Folklore. Radio Parallax doesn't have Joe, but we do have Evo the plumber. We expect to bring him back to talk about how bathroom wipes are clogging up America's sewers. To quote briefly from a piece by Carolyn Thompson that was in the B Increasingly popular bathroom wipes, pre moistened towelettes that are often advertised as flushable, are being blamed for creating clogs and backups in sewer systems around the nation. Wastewater authorities say wipes may go down the toilet but even many labeled flushable aren't breaking down as they course through the sewage system. We put a call into Evo to ask him um, about that, and he said, yes, it's true. Hoping the weeks to come, he'll come and explain more about uh, America's impending sewage crisis. Let's do one or two non-assassination items. Flying back east to Pittsburgh last Wednesday, I thought of the article in the B, which I was reading on the plane, noting that airlines are wringing more inches out of their seating. And I think I can attest to that. Yes, Peace in the Bee by Joshua Freed noted that um, the big U.S. airlines are taking out old bulky seats in favor of so-called slimline models that take up less space front to back, allowing five or six more seats on each plane. And uh, they made the aisles just a bit thinner, too. The article noted that uh, you can expect more bumps from the beverage carts from now on. And doggone it, that too, I can attest to. What frightens Mr. McMillan about this is that we're in the middle of an obesity epidemic. People are getting larger, and our seats are getting smaller. And of course, uh, when you do want to fly somewhere, one place you may be flying less in the future might be China. Interesting piece in the business section last week about how tourism is in a state of decline in smog-clouded China. (laughs) They showed this ghastly picture of gray skies over Tiananmen Square. To which I would add, yep. We are telling you about that last November. If you're going to go to China, you may need to take a gas mask. And apparently over in Europe, there's a big to-do about um, the Roma people, and possibly uh, they're possibly kidnapping children. It's widely believed that the Roma, better known to you perhaps as gypsies, have long had a habit of stealing children. That is, that is the stereotype. And sadly, on all counts, it appears that uh, some children they're now turning up over in Europe appear to have had exactly that happened to them. They did not look like the people that they were in the custody of, and genetic tests showed that um, the people that claimed to be their mother and father were not. All right, we're going to need to go to a break in a couple of minutes, but as we do, I just want to say that um, although I did suggest we might be able to get Oliver Stone for today's program, I'm sorry to report that Mr. Stone was hands down the most popular speaker at the conference, and um, uh, Getting even a five-minute interview item was simply not possible. I, I did have a chat after the conference with its excellent program administrator, Ben Wecht, who is Dr. Cyril Wecht's highly capable son, about whether he thought it might be possible to get stoned in the future, to which he replied, he's awfully well protected.
But he would further us with some appropriate people we may contact, and, and we're going to give it a go. We did have better luck with Mark Lane, who did assure me that uh, he would be willing to come on this program in the future. We will attempt to do the legwork uh, necessary to make that happen. Also, Len Osanik, who produces Black Op Radio. is another person I expect we will bring on to talk uh, to you, dear listener, about the good work he does in bringing some people who have interesting things to say before the public. Len Osanik and Black Ops Radio have had quite a few <laughs> guests in common with what we've done right here in Radio Parallax, which allows me to segue into talking about um, the first special event they had on Thursday night. After that, we'll take a break and talk more about the conference. But I just want to note in closing that um, it was a good feeling to go to uh, the first evening's special event, which reflected upon journalism and how it relates to looking at what happened to President Kennedy. On the dais that night were Jefferson Morley, author of Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA, and a former investigative reporter for the Washington Post. We've had Mr. Morley on this program. I told him, by the way, he was long overdue to come back. He agreed enthusiastically that was so. We will be getting Jefferson Morley back on this program. Joining him also in the dais was Russ Baker, author of Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government, and The Secret History of the Last 50 Years. Russ is also the founder of WhoWhatWhy.com. We've had him on, I don't know, three times, Mr. McMillan, and I expect that Russ will be back. Joining Morley and Baker was David Talbot, author of the bestseller Brothers, A Hidden History of the Kennedy Years. He's the former CEO and founder and editor-in-chief of Salon.com. We've had David on twice, and you can bet he's going to be back. Joining that trio was Jerry Polikoff, writer and blogger whose work's been published in the New York Times and the Village Voice, and goes back to the 1960s as one of the first people that saw there were problems both with the case and how it was being reported. And finally, there was Lisa Pease. We've had on, I don't know how many times, seven, eight, I don't know. Lisa is, uh, is one of our favorites. She's an information activist, according to the, uh, the brochure. And also co-author and co-editor of The Assassinations. She and Jim DiEugenio produced Probe Magazine for many years. The only person of the six in the dais we have not had on this program was Oliver Stone. I hope in the next uh, two or three months we will uh, correct that deficiency. And uh, before we go to break, I just want to note that one thing I've been anticipating for a while is that they're going to assassinate John F. Kennedy all over again between now and the anniversary of his death. Over the decades, a cottage industry has grown up spreading uh, scurrilous information about John Kennedy. It's always struck me as a little odd that the sources for that always seem to trace back to the Central Intelligence Agency. On the way back on the plane, I was reading Evan Thomas's book, The Very Best Men, subtitled The Daring Early Years of the CIA. The book goes into the curious lives of four powerful people in the early days of the CIA, Desmond Fitzgerald, Frank Wisner... Richard Bissell, and Tracy Barnes. We have had Evan Thomas on this program in the past. I'm proud to say he is a hell of a writer. But I was rather struck in reading page 257 of this book, which was talking about the Bay of Pigs invasion, when I stumbled upon this paragraph. John F. Kennedy was also feeling gloomy that weekend. He'd gone out to Glen Ora, the weekend place his wife favored in the Virginia Hunt country. The First Lady rode. The president was bored. He spent the early afternoon driving golf balls into cow pastures. He was also physically uncomfortable. His chronic venereal disease had flared up again. A specialist would give him a shot of penicillin the next morning. Now, as a physician, when I read something like that, I go, holy cow. 
And that got me checking out the footnotes to the chapter, which cited the venereal disease story as coming from Nigel Hamilton's JFK, Reckless Youth. I am a little surprised that the CIA people that have been so helpful to many of these authors didn't also include the fact that during that weekend in question, JFK had stopped beating Jackie. I want to quote to our pal Don Rose, who was noted as part of the comedy act he used to do down in Southern California. And he once posed the question, what if JFK had not gone into politics? What if, instead, he'd become a stand-up comedian? Dunn would then launch into, man walks into a bar. He loses his wallet there. And at that point, quits while he's ahead, which is what you ought to do in comedy. And if we're going to talk about journalism in relationship to the case and its failings, I think we're going to have to briefly, at least, outline what has taken place over the past 50 years. As we were flying back to California, I was chatting with Dr. Gary Aguilar about this case. And I said, you know, Gary, I think this whole thing reminds me of the old story about the seven blind men and the elephant. I think you may know this one from childhood. According to the story, seven blind men were sent out to investigate what there was to say about an elephant. And as each came back, they described their experiences with the elephant. One, of, one said it was like a fan. Another said it was like a tree. Another said it was like a spear. Another said it was like a rope. One blind man described it as like a wall. And of course, we know that each blind man could only appreciate one part of the elephant by his experience touching it. We find it to be an amusing story because we have in our mind's eye a very clear picture of what an elephant is supposed to look like and why it is that each man touching only a part of it was seeing a non-representative fraction of the whole. But as I said to Dr. Aguilar, I think in this case, we have the reports of seven blind men about what an elephant's like, but we don't know actually what the elephant is supposed to look like. Gary pointed out that that might not even be bad enough. I said, yeah, maybe you're right. Perhaps one of the blind men was actually sent out to examine a horse. Josiah Thompson gave an excellent talk about how he reconstructs the actual murder in Dealey Plaza. And he likened the case to a giant jigsaw puzzle where a lot of the pieces are missing. But even worse, a lot of illegitimate pieces have been added. Pick your metaphor. They both can apply. But I think what I need to do, dear listener, is just kind of try and give you a two-minute or three-minute summary of how things evolved over the past five decades. Let's go with a third metaphor here, that of a tennis match. On one side is serving officialdom, official reports, official findings, what the government has to say. On the other side is a motley crew of citizens that had doubts about the official findings. Back in 1963, November 22nd, by the evening of the day of the crime, the Dallas police were notified by the feds that you have your man. When reporters asked Chief Jesse Curry of the Dallas Police Department if there was a conspiracy, his answer was, it's only him. Now, of course, by any possible standards of investigation, which would include interrogating the suspect at some length and actually doing some investigation, now, under normal circumstances, you'd probably have to interrogate the prisoner for a while and do a, a little bit of poking around before you could make such a pronouncement as, it's only him. But the fact is, that was the posture taken very early on. In fact, Mr. McMillan, I can't really do this as a long narrative. Let me, in, let me insert parts of the conference as we go along, and they may be relevant. Bill Kelly gave a talk at the conference about the tapes of Air Force One which paints a very vivid picture related to what I just said about, you know, it's Oswald and only Oswald. As the presidential party, with the new, newly sworn-in president, was flying back to Washington, D.C., 
We know from three separate reports from credible journalists, in this case, Pierre Salinger, William Manchester, and Theodore H. White, that the Situation Room in the White House radioed to the presidential aircraft, no conspiracy. We also now know that that exchange cannot be found in the currently existing copies of the tape, which we know to have been edited. A lot of people start asking the rather valid question, how could they have known? (laughs) Not so long after the shooting. After Oswald was himself killed, the FBI did an investigation of the case and concluded that he had done it, he'd done it alone, there were three shots, there were three hits, end of story. But both the Justice Department and the person of Nicholas Katzenbach, acting attorney general, as Robert Kennedy was by that point something of a basket case, and the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, both urged President Johnson to convene a commission to look into the crime. They both used eerily similar language in stating that the public needs to be reassured that Oswald was the real assassin. So it was that the Warren Commission was set up to prove that Lee Harvey Oswald was the only assassin. And that, furthermore, he had no co-conspirators and no help whatsoever. He was a Marxist, a communist defector, a sociopath, a nut. While the Warren Commission was putting together uh, all the paperwork that was going to inevitably come to that conclusion, attorney Mark Lane in New York came forward to, as he put it, represent Oswald's interests before the Warren Commission. Acting like a defense attorney, Lane started raising issues about the case against Oswald. Although, as he said during the conference, he was the only witness that the Warren Commission ever called back. You can be sure about one thing, they weren't very happy with him. But nevertheless, in September of 1964, the Warren Commission report was published. On the very day it was published, it was universally hailed as being a remarkable piece of scholarship, thoroughly researched, a work that would last through the ages. The trouble was, as people later found out, all these people that wrote these glowing reviews of it had not yet read it. People like Tom Wicker, who praised it highly, admitted later, oh my God, I couldn't have read the thing. It was hundreds of pages long. And for the first year... After the Warren Commission report was published, there seemed to have been virtually no criticism here in the United States about its findings. Well, I was highly amused by one anecdote from a speaker, and I can't remember who said this, who pointed out when the president of Ghana was presented a copy of the Warren Commission report by the American ambassador, he flipped open the page, pointed down at Alan Dulles, and looked up and said simply, whitewash. A couple of books were published overseas, critical of the Warren Commission report. In fact, a couple were published even before the report came out. But it took until, you know, 65, 66 for some bestsellers to arise that really got the public wondering about what had happened. This was Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment, Harold Weisberg's Whitewash, and Edward Epstein's Inquest. By this point, there was clearly doubt in the public mind about the findings of the Warren Commission. In fact, Life magazine, which owned the Zapruder film, It purchased the film on the day of the assassination, made a couple copies available to the FBI and Secret Service, and then kept the master in their vaults. Back in 1966, Life started taking out the film and looking at it very carefully. Josiah Thompson got involved in the investigation at this point, working for Life magazine, and was witness to the issue that came out three years after the crime in November of 1966 that called the lone assassin theory a matter of reasonable doubt. This is based on the fact that when you looked at good clear slides, blow-ups of the film, it appeared very clearly that Governor Conley and President Kennedy were struck by two separate bullets. 
And what you may not be aware of, dear listener, is that back in 1964, that's what everybody thought happened, including the FBI. Well, that's at first. Looking at the film, you see Kennedy react, then you see Conley react. Conley, to the day he died, insisted that he'd been hit by a separate bullet from the first one that struck the president. His wife, Nellie, testified that she looked back and saw the reaction of the president to being struck by the first bullet and then observed her husband take the next one. This was not the official finding of the Warren Commission. They had a problem. The FBI informed them that the alleged murder weapon had such an incredibly finicky, bulky bolt action that can only be cycled once every 2.3 seconds. Of course, that didn't even include aiming. That was just working the mechanism of the rifle. Since on film it appeared the two men were struck in a shorter interval than that, there was a problem. But as Thompson would note to his dismay, after publishing that one issue, life abandoned their investigation into what happened to John F. Kennedy. The New York Times had a simultaneous investigation, and that quietly went by the boards. So Thompson proceeded and wrote his own book about what he suspected happened. It came out in 1967. It was called Six Seconds in Dallas. It is still considered one of the uh, seminal works in the case, and it attracted some attention. In fact, back at the Justice Department, as we served the tennis ball back over the other side of the net, we find that Attorney General Ramsey Clark sent out a memo saying that something was going to be done to counter this junk coming out of Thompson. Ramsey Clark asked the photographer, the radiologist, and two of the autopsy pathologists to certify that the existing record of photographs and x-rays was complete. This they dutifully did, even though a couple of the pathologists had noted that there was a couple pictures that were missing. They even cited this in their Warren testimony. The photographer would later say that when he was asked to sign that paper, he looked at it and said, well, I don't, I don't think this is true. He was then told, sign it. When he was later asked about that by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, someone pointed out that, you know, there are people that resist under those circumstances, to which photographer Stringer replied, well, yeah, but they don't last very long. Now, at this point in time, to go back over the net again, down in New Orleans, District Attorney Jim Garrison was looking into the Kennedy case. The Department of Justice of the United States knew this by 1966, and after asking the personnel from the autopsy to falsely certify that the record was complete, they then asked the pathologist to review their record to see if they wouldn't, didn't conclude that they'd gotten it right. They said they did. But something was still up. One of the autopsy pathologists was asked by someone in the U.S. Justice Department to write a letter that would just quietly request that an outside panel take a look at these photos and x-rays and make sure everything was going to pass muster, which Dr. Boswell did. What would be later known as the Clark Panel then convened with four supposedly non-government pathologists, experts in their field. And reviewing the x-rays and, uh, and photographs, they concluded that yes, the pathologist back in 1963 had gotten it correct. There was evidence for two shots that struck the president, both of which came from the upper rear. They did point out a couple of surprising problems with the materials, however. They claimed that the autopsy pathologist misplaced the wound. They put it four inches lower than it actually was. Since the height of your head's only about five or six inches on a good day, this was a rather notable error. Nevertheless, point to government. Official panel looked at it and said, yeah, basically, they got it right. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. we got lots to talk about. 